You're listening to South Asia Sphere from Himal South Asian, a bi-weekly roundup of what's been happening across South Asia. This episode was recorded on the 27th of June, 2023. Hi everyone, and welcome to South Asia Sphere, our fortnightly roundup of news events and regional affairs. I'm Raisa and I'm joined by my colleague and fact-checker and researcher Saheli. Hi Saheli. Hi Raisa. So this episode for our big stories, we're talking about Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's US visit and the resulting impact on India-US relations, as well as the sinking of a trawler in Greece with around 300 Pakistani refugees on board. For around South Asia in five minutes, we'll be talking about communal violence in North and Northeast India, encroachment on land for Buddhist temples in Sri Lanka, progress on amendments to Nepal citizenship laws, Myanmar's recent flower strike, the resurgence of Jamaat-e-Islami, and the call for an ICC probe into war crimes allegations in Afghanistan. So let's get started with unpacking Modi's recent visit to the U.S. I've long believed that the relationship between the United States and India is one of the, will be one of the defining relationships of the 21st century. Now, on June 21st, the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, kicked off a two-day visit to Washington. And during this visit, Modi and U.S. President Joe Biden are expected to be discussing the potential of better defense and technology cooperation. In particular, Biden is pushing New Delhi to advance a deal for dozens of U.S.-made armed drones, and this deal has been mired in bureaucratic delays for years. With this visit, the India-U.S. relationship is in the spotlight, with Biden looking to deepen ties with India. Normally, you know, policymakers who discuss the India-U.S. relationship, they talk a lot about things like shared values. There's a lot of talk about the world's oldest and the world's largest democracy coming together. And this is rhetoric that has been used by multiple U.S. presidents. But... More recently, there's questions being raised about whether this kind of rhetoric holds any water anymore, given Modi's crackdown on critics, including the media and non-profits which are documenting rights violations, and also, of course, the rise in attacks on minorities, especially Muslims, during his regime. For instance, independent journalist Kalpana Sharma noted that while the New York Times had no front-page news on Modi's visit, at least on his first day, There was a scathing op-ed which spoke about how Modi's authoritarianism and repression should be disturbing to its readers. Now, despite this, the US does see India as a vital actor and buffer against Chinese and Russian interests and influences. And, of course, this is why they're seeking a closer relationship. But Biden's message about democracy being a preferable model to the autocratic methods embraced by, you know, countries like China and Russia sounds a bit unconvincing now, given the red carpet which is being rolled out for Modi, despite growing criticism of his policies internationally. It's also worth noting that India has in the past not always aligned with US goals, ranging from you know, forging ties with Moscow during the Cold War period to India refusing to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine and even working with Myanmar's military regime post-coup and maintaining ties with Iran as well. 
given all this i think the us won't be expecting to form a deep relationship with india such as for example with its so called five eyes partners but they may attempt to find common ground on shared interests for the moment though the rhetoric on democratic values and ideals continues our next big story is from pakistan on the 14th of june more than 750 migrants and refugees including 350 pakistanis were on a trawler that sank off the coast of greece this is one of the deadliest incidents in the mediterranean sea with 104 men being rescued 78 bodies being recovered and the remaining hundreds still missing and now presumed dead Pakistan declared the 19th of June as a day of mourning and has begun arresting several people for human trafficking. Now reports from survivors have emerged and they've raised several questions. So the Guardian reported that leaked testimonies from survivors shows that Pakistanis were forced below deck with other nationalities being allowed to remain on the top deck where they had a greater chance of survival. Women and children were also forced below deck. and no women and children were reported among the survivors with pakistani media reporting that at least 298 pakistanis died conditions on the trawler were bleak particularly for those below deck and they lacked access to water and several people had died before the trawler sank now in the wake of this tragedy greek authorities and european policies more broadly on refugees and migration are being criticized So reports say that the trawler was at a standstill for days and that those on board desperately called for help while Greek authorities sat back and watched some reports even accuse authorities of tying a rope to the trawler that destabilized it and ultimately caused it to sink but while this tragedy unfolded global attention was elsewhere and more focused on the missing Titan submersible which happened to have two Pakistanis on board An extensive search and rescue mission was conducted to try and find the vessel though experts likely knew that chances of survival were slim. Both these tragedies illustrate how migrant and refugee deaths receive far less attention and are almost seen as normal. And both show the disparities in Pakistani society. So those on the Titan paid $250,000 for an 8-hour expedition while the migrants on the boat paid $7,500 to traffickers for a place on the boat and a chance for a better life and while pakistani and greek authorities are cracking down on the traffickers who operate these boats it isn't really going to the heart of the issue of why these people are so desperate to leave in the first place that they are willing to take such a risky journey the exodus of people from pakistan is another statistic that really illustrates the grim economic reality of the country as economist amar khan puts it quote this is purely a failing of the state why it has not just failed to educate or enable work for its people but is also failing to feed its people so the deaths of these migrants really just illustrates the failures of several states that seem like they're going to continue And now for our next segment around South Asia in 5 minutes. In North and Northeast India, 
there has been a spate of communal violence in recent weeks. Violence continues in Manipur, for one, with two soldiers in Imphal West injured on June 22nd morning, and there was also intermittent firing reported throughout the week. Now, more than 100 people have been killed and hundreds more injured in the ethnic violence. On Tuesday, June 20th, the Supreme Court also refused an application for an urgent hearing filed by the Manipur Tribal Forum, which sought for the army to take control of the law and order situation and for a special investigation team to be deployed. More than 1,500 schoolchildren who were displaced from Manipur have also been enrolled in schools across Mizoram, while the internet ban continues until June 25th. We spoke about the violence in Manipur in a previous edition of South Asia Sphere, so do look out for that in the episode notes. Meanwhile, on Tuesday, June 20th, the Uttarakhand police booked 50 to 60 people for ransacking Muslim shops in Nainital and tonsuring a man from the minority community who was accused of bestiality. This incident comes after similar violence in neighboring Purola in Uttarkasi after the abduction of a 14-year-old girl, which Hindu right-wing organizations claimed was a case of love jihad, though this was contested by the girl's family. On June 3rd, Muslim shops were again targeted and posters went up asking Muslim traders to leave before Mahapanchayat on June 15th. And in Chamba district in Himachal Pradesh, a mob burned two houses and damaged government vehicles after the murder of a 21-year-old herder. Now, these incidents continue to impact relations between communities. But in more positive news across the border in Pakistan, this week the Higher Education Commission withdrew a letter objecting to celebrating the Hindu festival Holi in universities after public backlash, including from journalists and activists, on orders from Education Minister Rana Tanbir Hussain. That, that's a very important issue because no, no, it's paddy land, yeah. land that people have cultivated for almost a century. In Sri Lanka, stories of encroachments on land for Buddhist temples have been making the news again. In Mulaitivu, the archaeological department sought to declare 229 acres of land surrounding the Kurundi Vihara, a Buddhist temple, as an archaeological reservation. Locals say that farmlands and residential areas are included in the proposed reservation. Rumours circulated that the government was planning to transfer land associated with the temple to the public, which the president's office denied. But the Pivituru Hela Urumaya, a Singhala nationalist party led by Udaya Gamman Pillar, announced that a group of 50 of its members would visit the site on the 21st of June in protest. Meanwhile, in Colombo, the Sunday Times reported that the Environment Minister is seeking to amend the Gazette designating the Talanagama wetland as an environmentally protected area to legalize the presence of an unauthorized temple in the area. On June 22nd, the Supreme Court in Nepal cleared the way for amendments to the country's Citizenship Act, despite an interim interlocutory order by Justice Manoj Sharma after sustained protests. The amendments will allow the children of parents who received their citizenship by birth 
to acquire citizenship by descent. Now, an estimated 400,000 people are waiting for citizenship through this amendment. The bill will also allow non-resident Nepalis to acquire dual citizenship without the right to vote. Nepal citizenship laws have long been deemed discriminatory to single mothers as citizenship by descent was easily granted through the patrilineal line with children of Nepali mothers and foreign fathers only eligible for citizenship through naturalization. Meanwhile, foreign women married to Nepali men would immediately obtain naturalized citizenship as long as they renounce the citizenship of their country of origin, while there was no provision for foreign men married to Nepali women to receive citizenship. Much of the legislative delay is due to the contention that the President Ramchandra Paudel should not have approved a bill passed by a lapsed parliament. But the amendments will allow many people, especially those living in the Thare, to obtain citizenship. We published a piece on Nepal citizenship battles in 2020 by Abalal, so do revisit that in the episode notes. In Myanmar, more than 100 people, mostly women, were arrested for wearing flowers on June 19th as a protest in support of Aung San Suu Kyi on her 78th birthday. Witnesses say that women were seized and beaten for wearing flowers in their hair, and police have also been arresting people buying and selling flowers, and those posting birthday messages or photos of them holding flowers on social media. Suchi, whose trial for several criminal charges resumed last week, thanked her supporters for their show of solidarity. Now, this is the latest in constant crackdowns on protests since the military coup in 2021. There has also been an increase in violence from resistance groups as the conflict in Myanmar grows. In Bangladesh, the hardline party Jamati Islami held a rally in Dhaka on June 10th demanding a caretaker government in order to hold general elections in Bangladesh. This was the first such rally held by Jamaat-e Islami since 2013, when its registration was cancelled by a high court order. This is surprising, given that it was the ruling Awami League who initiated war crimes trials against the party in what was criticised as a flawed process. Despite the widespread belief that the party was declining, the Daily Star reported a threefold rise in membership due to carrying out what they called invitational activities and campaigning. Jamaat has previously been banned twice, particularly for its role during the 1971 war when the party opposed Bangladesh's independence and killed and attacked pro-independence activists and forces. The party's resurgence is sparking discussions from analysts that this might be part of a political strategy by the ruling Awami League to open a dialogue ahead of elections. But others point to recent visa restrictions threatened by the US to Bangladeshis undermining democratic electoral processes as the key reason. On the 20th of June, an Australian senator requested the International Criminal Court to investigate what Australian military commanders knew about war crime allegations in Afghanistan. Australia is currently conducting inquiries into war crimes committed by Australian troops in the country and charged a soldier in March. In early June, another soldier lost a defamation case against journalists he sued for reporting that he had murdered Afghans during his time of deployment. Now, while these 
internal investigations are important steps towards accountability one shortcoming and indeed why the icc was requested to investigate is because senior commanders aren't being investigated and held accountable now the icc is unlikely to step in given the ongoing domestic process but the request could pressure australia into holding their own investigation and now for our next segment bookmark Raisa, do you have any recommendations? Thanks, Aheli. Yeah. So this week I watched Kamli, which is a Pakistani film directed by Sarmad Kusat. And it follows the unspoken desires of different generations of women set in rural Punjab. In particular, I think uh, the person who was most in focus is this young woman whose husband has actually gone overseas presumably find a better life for his wife and never returns so it this is set about 8 years after he vanishes and the protagonist is living with her sister-in-law who is also blind and caring for her and it follows her life she's a very young vibrant character and in the start of the film there's this very striking visual where she's posing for a painting for this artist for whom she's kind of a muse she's this very young vibrant figure but she's almost just wilting in this rural countryside and it really also explores how women are almost discarded or you know they are not allowed to have autonomy and agency over their own life trajectories that's something that the film really captures there were parts that i found a little bit strange though particularly there was this scene between protagonist and her love interest where he describes her as the prey and himself as the predator and that to me leaned into these kind of stereotypes you see in bollywood where it's like the man chasing the woman they did subvert it in a kind of nice way where she's also pursuing at one point but yeah i feel like it kind of lent into some of these stereotypes as well without like necessarily challenging them especially when you look at the end as well without spoiling it i feel like it didn't really question those kind of stereotypes tumhari aankhon ki udasi mujhe bahut achhi lagti thi kisi purani yaad ki tarah yeah i also watched it i agree with what you said about the stereotypes i did find that scene you mentioned a little odd but it was also really beautiful the movie itself is gorgeous so i remember when we were talking about joyland we made a similar comment about how the cinematography is really beautiful so mm. the director of kamli actually produced joyland i found kamli to be really beautifully shot especially the use of the nature in punjab especially given i think what they were trying to portray in those scenes and sort of like the comparison of her freedom when she's there versus how you know claustrophobic the house is um but yeah it's worth a watch also just a quick reminder that we're hosting another edition of screen south asia and it's going to run from the 30th of june to the 3rd of july we'll be screening sand and water which follows the lives and experiences of natives of Char Islands in Bangladesh. We'll also link the sign-up link to watch in case you haven't registered yet. And on that note, that's it for this edition of South Asia Sphere. Thanks, everyone, and see you next time. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to South Asia Sphere. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Himal South Asian social media channels to make sure you don't miss the next episode. Head to our website himalmag.com to see more of Himal's work, and please support our work by becoming a member. Check out our membership plans at himalmag.com/membership.